This is Recognize, a podcast about the NHL's black and biracial hockey heroes, proudly supported by eBay Canada. Ever since I was a kid, I collected hockey cards with spare change my dad gave me. As a black person, to see others like me on the ice inspired me. They were my role models and showed me hockey is a game for everyone. I've collected 100 rookie cards for NHL's black and biracial players, and I'm going to talk to all of them so you can learn their stories. Buck dug out along the boards, Van Boxmere shot, deflects, loose puck, McKechnie shot, he scores! On a second try, Tony McKechnie ties the game at one-off. This week, I'm talking to Tony McKechnie. He was born in Montreal in 1958 and played 13 seasons in the NHL for the Buffalo Sabres, the Quebec Nordiques, the St. Louis Blues, the New York Rangers, the Minnesota North Stars, the Chicago Blackhawks, and the Detroit Red Wings. His rookie card is from 1978. In it, we see a young man wearing blue and gold. He stood catching his breath for a moment as if he knows the action is about to unfold. Uh, what comes to mind to you when you look at uh, this rookie card, which you've probably seen before? Yeah, you know what, uh, uh, Dean, it's kind of funny uh, when, you, when you had your first hockey card. And it's kind of funny. One of the companies is from London, Ontario, that uh, produced those hockey cards. And I used to give them away to people that, that would send me uh, pictures and I'd sign them and I, I, I'd put a hockey card in. Um, and if I would have had those hockey cards, like Wayne Gretzky's rookie card was on that sheet. And all these uh, Hall of Fame hockey players, and I just I gave them away to people all the time. I, I wish I had them today. Uh, the hockey cards. Yeah, that, that that one I do have. Uh, that's that was the first one that you showed. That was the first hockey yeah. card. Do you do you remember when that photo was taken? Was uh, I was being like seventy nine, I think. Yeah, yeah. I guess they wouldn't tell you. They'd just be taking random shots and. Yeah, they, that, that's what they did back then. You did, you signed a, an offer sheet at the beginning of the year to have your likeness okay. uh, being able to be used by the league and the hockey card companies and so forth. So you signed off on that. Uh, they had the rights to use your likeness um, in any shape or way or form that they wanted to do it. When when you have when you're on a hockey card, that's uh, it's 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 pretty cool uh, when you're a young person and you're on a hockey card after um, collecting hockey cards and baseball cards. And Dean, Dean, did you ever uh, use your hockey cards in, in the spokes of your bicycle? Um, I, I heard of those stories. Um, <laughs> from, um, another interesting story is our principal was a well-liked guy in grade six. And we used to flip cards with him against the wall. Yeah. We played some game called flipping cards. So yeah. that was a special. No, I've, I've done that too. But I mean, this whole thing was a, with the bicycle spokes. Yeah, when I, when I think of every time you bought a you, you bought a pack of gum back then, you got three or four or five uh, cards of baseball or or something, and sure enough, uh, you put them on in the, on your bicycle. Like I, I probably had a Mickey Mantle uh, card that was in bicycle spokes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, nobody nobody knew back then that they'd be worth something someday. Are you able to take us back? Because before uh, you're adopted, you told me. So are you able to take us back in terms of your memories of going to your adopted uh, parents in terms of uh, uh, your early life? 
Um, yeah, you know what, uh, Dean, it's interesting about being adopted, and I've talked to other people that have been adopted, and um, when you're a young kid, uh, you just try to think about who you look like, because uh, most of your friends at school uh, look like your dad, your mother, and you had those conversations, hey, you look like your dad, you got your dad's eyes, and so forth. So when I was uh, adopted at the age of 13 months, um, I didn't know who I looked like. And I, I wondered uh, why somebody would give me up. And I didn't know, other than the fact that I was in a really good place with a, a very good family that adopted me. So it wasn't really a big worry. But as you grow older, um, as I did, you just thought about, uh, okay, who are my, who's my mother? Who's my father? Where do they come from? What, what's their background? And fortunately, um, I got to meet both my um, uh, biological parents in my life. Uh, which is a great story in itself, that uh, my father was from Africa and came to school in, in Montreal at uh, McGill University. Nigeria? Uh, from Nigeria, yeah. Lagos. Yeah, yeah, same as Jerome McGill. Yeah, okay. Yes, exactly. So anyway, just interesting that uh, that was my father, and I got to meet him uh, as I was, I think, about 20 years old. He came over, and he was offering me a job uh, to come to Africa. To He just wanted to find me. And uh, sure enough, my first year NHL, I'm, I'm driving a Corvette, I'm driving a Porsche, and he has no idea what I, I'm, I'm like, what's hockey? <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you a funny story. He came to St. Louis. Uh, he used to come visit me once a year uh, where I was in the United States and Canada. So sure enough, he came to my house in St. Louis, and we were, I picked him up at night, and um uh, he, he, he thought my house was a church because it was really big and oh, yeah. it was on the top of a hill. And he said, is this a church? <laughs> uh, very religious person. And I said, no, this is, this is my house. Uh, this big 5,000 square foot house yeah. on, on top of a hill in Missouri. And, uh, he came to practice the next day and he'd never been to a hockey game or practice before. And everybody had their own water bottle. And it was a funny story. We were driving back after the morning skate uh, before the game that night. And he asked me if we were drinking whiskey in the, the water bottles because he thought it would keep us warm. Oh. And he had no idea. He thought we were drinking some sort of alcohol to keep us warm while we're on this uh, in the St. Louis arena, uh, if you will. So he's Nigerian student at McGill. It was your mom, uh, biological mom from McGill yeah, as well? Uh, she was from England. And uh, yeah. I met at the university at McGill, and uh, I've since met her as well, which was uh, very nice. And again, the whole thing is like, who do you look like, and what, what's, what's the nature of your being? And um, anyway, I was very fortunate to be able to meet um, my biological parents. And a lot of people I talked to that have been adopted, they, they never have that uh, luxury yeah. being able to do yeah. that. Um, so... Again, with the whole adoption thing, if I wouldn't have been adopted by that family uh, who had a backyard rink uh, and older brothers and sister that played hockey, I, I don't think I would have made the NHL if I would have had that uh, basis uh, in growing up um, with that family. I was very, very fortunate to, to be gifted uh, to be part of that family. I got to meet Johnny Bauer. And I got to meet George Armstrong and I got to meet um, Daryl Sittler and all these guys I grew up idolizing. I got to know them uh, later on uh, in my 
life uh, being a hockey player. So I, I got to meet all those guys that I idolized when I was um, a kid growing up uh, watching the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, win Stanley Cups. How did you get to meet them for a guy that was living all the way out in Sarnia? Actually, uh, of, uh, my, my father, uh, Dean, was head of um, uh, Pure Oil, uh, the uh, uh, company, oil company in Sarnia. And uh, each year, uh, he brought in a different Toronto Maple Leaf to sign autographs at our company picnic in July or something. And I remember re meeting Ron Ellis, and I think Johnny Bauer came, and, and George Armstrong, and, and my dad could pick and choose who he wanted to come. And that's how I got to meet them. And then later on, at just different golf tournaments and different um, alumni functions uh, in and around Toronto, I, I got to uh, meet and, and get together with these guys, which was, for me, it was just a real uh, honor. And uh, Ron Ellis, and, and just I think of Ricky Lee, and I think of Dave Keon. And uh, Dave Keon had a home uh, near me in, in Florida, in Palm Beach. And so I got to know uh, Dave Keon through that thing with Florida. Uh, so just different people I was able to meet uh, in my uh, experience in travels. Yeah, so you, you idolize players growing up and limited TV access, and then all of a sudden you're getting to see them you know, face to face as a young kid, that's pretty special. Yeah. The other the other team we got to see was uh, Detroit Red Wings were on once a week on a cable uh, station that my dad bought an aerial back in the late 60s, early 70s. And Gordy Howe was still there and uh, all the, the greats. So we got to watch Detroit Red Wings once or twice a week. And then we got to watch Toronto. And then I think we probably had the French uh, Canadian station, which we saw Montreal uh, during that time frame. So whatever hockey that there was out there, my dad made a point of just trying to find before satellite dishes, uh, the fact that we could we could watch uh, as much hockey as we could watch. We actually used to watch the Hamilton Red Wings um, on CHCH uh, out of Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, and my dad had that channel. Your parents have this passion for hockey. It just seems like a great recipe for for success in hockey, like almost everything you, you would want if you want a player to be exposed to the game. Yeah, I was going to mention, Dean, too, that um, our acceptance in a, in a small town uh, in southern Ontario, uh, there was only about two or three other Black families that I was aware of. Um, and for us, being a Black uh, persons, excuse me, I've got uh, two brothers that were adopted as well of, of color. And for us to be accepted in the community there, uh, ath athletics was the way that uh, we got accepted uh, in the community uh, because we were good athletes and we played sports. And I think that the people realized that there was no difference in color. Uh, they realized that uh, my parents were white and adopted black children and we fit into the sports and school and so forth and the community, uh, but sports was the main uh, conduit uh, for exactly uh, how I was able to be, fit in and be accepted uh, yeah. in, in that area and in sports and, and obviously going forward. But I mean, without sports, I'm not sure where I would have ended up. I, I don't know where what, what, what direction I would have gone in if it wouldn't yeah. have been uh, athletics and in and the uh, community. Uh, shift back and ask you to talk about some of your experiences playing hockey as a kid um 
when did you start playing hockey and were you good at it from day one? Yeah, you know what, uh, Dean, um, I, I started playing, I think, skating when I was three years old. And um, you probably remember these skates, uh, the double runners. It was like this double blade that everybody sort of graduated and started to skate with, with this two-sided blade thing on each foot. And you put it on like a pair of shoes, basically. So that was at three years old. And then after that, I just remember having hand-me-downs uh, equipment and everybody was older than me that I was playing uh, with and against on that rink. Uh, my brother, four years older, my other brother, 10 years older, and everybody was my senior. And what I was gonna mention to you that um, everything on the rink of that size is keep away. If you got the puck, you wanted to keep it as long as you could. And then if you lost it, you, you wanted to get it back again. So that was the whole idea of playing hockey to me was this whole keep away thing. And then uh, having played against older players, like four years, five years, my senior, when I started playing against other people that were five years old, when I started playing light hockey, it was really easy because I was already better than the guys that were four years older than me. Uh, and when I got back to playing with a bunch of five-year-olds like my age, uh, I dominated because I was already doing it against people that were older than me. So that, that was my introduction to hockey, uh, basically. Yeah. It, was, it became really easy because I, it was like having a basketball court in your backyard. If you're American a basketball <laughs> and your parents said, hey, we're going to build you a basketball court. Well, yeah. my parents built me a hockey rink uh, for us. And again, I can, I can only describe it and compare it to if you had a basketball court or a, a baseball park in your backyard where you could just go and play every day. Or the or the ponds, but actually the the climate in Sarnia at the time you get kind of fortunate for the time time and effort your parents put in maintaining that. So I know it wasn't easy back then, but there seemed to be colder winters as well. So yeah, no, they they were out there and uh, they they wanted to make sure that the rink was done for Christmas every year. And uh, underneath that uh, Christmas tree every year was typically a brand new pair of hockey skates or a dozen hockey sticks. Uh, for us uh, at Christmas time. So, and they wanted to make sure that rink was was completed uh, before Christmas. And there's it, a lot of nights uh, flooding that rink uh, from midnight until seven in the morning. Uh, they were out there during the coldest times, uh, making sure that we had that hockey rink and, and boards and nets and, and lights. Uh, my dad uh, put floodlights uh, in the backyard. Out of his time. We could, we could play at night. Um, and the only time I remember coming in from the rink uh, was interesting. On Saturday night, we, we came inside to watch Hockey Night Canada uh, on a Saturday night. That's, that's when we came in from the rink uh, on a Saturday night. That was uh, like religion uh, to do that back in the day. Yeah. It, it sounds like you never had to be pushed to do it. It just sounds like something you, you just wanted to do. Like there weren't type of parents that were, were forcing you to play hockey. It's just they set the conditions and said, if you want to try, am I, am I correct in that assessment? Yeah, I just think, Dean, um, that it's just something that, again, re relating back to the, that playground idea in your backyard, and um, everybody older than you uh, was enjoying hockey. And again, I relate back to the Maple Leafs winning the Stanley Cup in my youth, and I thought, oh, my God, uh, that's awesome. Uh, the, the, our, our hometown team, uh, pretty much, we thought of Toronto as our, being our hometown uh, versus Detroit, actually. And um, 
Toronto just winning those Stanley Cups, it just it made you a hockey fan and it made you a Leaf fan. And as I mentioned, I said today uh, on Saturday night, if I have a choice of watching five different hockey games, I'm going to put on the Leaf game yeah. uh, because it still feels good to sit around that fireplace on a Saturday night, like I did sitting with my dad. Yeah. On the Experience is great with you. Yeah, watching, yeah. Watching, I'm watching the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, that, that that gets into your your soul. Yeah, yep. and it still is today. Yeah. So I want to jump up here. I think it's a very important point to note that you were the second overall pick in the 1978 OHA Junior A draft with the Kingston Canadians, which is a pretty remarkable feat. So can you tell us about that experience and uh, what it was like playing junior hockey? And I understand that. Um, you 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 likely could have been number one, but I think that's just just incredible feat that you were second overall pick. And, and what is uh, what is today's OHL? It was called the OHA. Yeah, it's the correcting and uh, interesting uh, twist on that. I know that you're from the era of Hamilton, and uh, I my mother was from Hamilton, and the team in Hamilton was really bad, and they were talking about moving the team to another city, which they ended up doing. Uh, to St. Catharines, I think, the Fin Cups that were at the time. So I uh, basically, uh, a friend of mine played for the Hamilton Red Wings and told me some horror stories about the team and, and what they were going through and financially and everything else. And uh, my best friend growing up was playing for the Kingston Canadians and they had the second pick overall. So I basically publicly, um, not, not unlike an Eric Lindros thing, I said, I'm not going to Hamilton. Uh, and it was close, closer to my home. I just wanted to go to Kingston and, uh, you know, it was one of those Eagle things. I refused to go to Hamilton, Ontario as a first pick overall. And, um, so anyway, I ended up getting taken second and they knew before. And, uh, the guy they drafted was a guy named Danny Shearer and he ended up winning rookie of the year. I got hurt my first year and missed 15 games and I was leading scorer rookie before I got hurt. So he won, he won the rookie of the year. And then two years later, uh, that same Hamilton team won the uh, Memorial cup. So, uh, but again, it was my decision not to go to Hamilton. At okay. The time. Yeah. Uh, I still had a great uh, junior career, but I mean, yeah, I could have gone to Hamilton and, and it was just, yeah. um, I don't know. That was uh, so, maybe a mistake I made uh, back then. So and I want to get up to Kingston in a bit, but if I take a step back, like I was a triple A hockey player in, in Burlington, as you mentioned, the region I grew up in. And I I might be in the middle of the pack as a point getter. And I knew the guys I was playing against, you could just tell the guys that were getting three goals per night or whatever. And when you got up to 14, 15 years old, maybe even younger at Pee Wee, you could tell them they were head and shoulders above everyone. So I would suspect your trajectory of being second overall pick when you're what 16 years old you must have had a long childhood of um just phenomenal statistics growing up were you someone that was netting multiple points per game for your your amateur career yeah i just remember uh, when i was in bantam dean i remember getting 50 goals and i counted um and then when i played junior b hockey when i was 15 years old. Um, I was playing against and with a bunch of 19 year olds uh, that were uh, out of midget, out of juvenile and not making junior A, but they, a bunch of guys got scholarships. So, and that year um, when I was 15 turning 16, I scored 95 points in what was 40 games. 
So 40, 40 goals and 55 assists, and I was 15 yeah. years old. Yeah. So, um, somebody came um, to uh, a practice, and my dad was going to pick me up. I, I couldn't, I wasn't even old enough to drive. And uh, the trainer who had seen everybody that came through Sarnia uh, said to my dad, he says, your son's going to make the NHL. And that was at 15 years old. And I was standing there and with this guy said, look, you're going, you're going to the NHL. So when you, when you think about hearing that at 15 years old, it's somebody that yeah. really knows. And yeah. just a matter of that point of just waiting until you're 19 years old when you can get drafted. Uh, so you just try to not get hurt. Uh, during that time frame, knowing yeah. that, okay, uh, next step is NHL after this OHA thing. Yeah. And everything worked out ex exactly to what that guy described uh, to me yeah. and my father. Uh, but it, it felt good to hear that uh, back then, that somebody that knew and just looked at me yeah. and said, you're, you're going to the NHL. And as a 15-year-old kid, it's kind of nice to hear that uh, if you're thinking about what your future um, is uh, ahead of you. And this guy knew uh, that I was going to make it. And uh, he was right. So am I correct in that the previous years, were you playing at your age group scoring lots or were you playing, at, like you mentioned, 15 playing with older players? How about when you were 10 years old? Were you playing with your age group or were you playing, always yeah, playing? Uh, Dean, uh, once I got to be uh, in, in five, when you could, uh, you know, is might and squirt and so forth, right? Uh, basically at that point, I started playing with my own age group, uh, outside of the rink in my backyard and still playing against the older guys. So in organized hockey, I was playing against my age group, uh, uh, from going five and forward. Now, as far as scoring goals go, um, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I wanted to be Bobby Orr and because when I was 10 years old, Bobby Orr was actually dominating uh, hockey as a defenseman. And it was very, it was kind of weird to have a defenseman be that good, the best player in the world, in the league, as a defenseman. And so um, I said, okay, I'm going to play left defense. I'm going to play where number four. And every time I got the puck in my own end, I wanted to go as far as I could through everybody and try and score. Uh, I wanted to be Bobby Orr. And um, I got to meet him um, later in life um, at a Team Canada training camp in Aurelia, Ontario, at the uh, Or Walton Hockey School. And for the first time in my life, um, I, I, I was at a loss for words when I sat down with Bobby Orr. Uh, I, I, I didn't have anything to say. I was just, in fact, I, I was just absolutely uh, demoralized. Uh, meaning I, I didn't know what to say to him. Just in, just in shock or honor. Yeah. Uh, was, I was meeting Bobby Orr, and uh, we we both had the same agent, who was Alan Eagleson, who set up the uh, lunch meeting. And for, for the first time in my life, I was speechless. And, and like crazy memory about not knowing what to say. And I, I got to meet him later uh, on a few occasions. Uh, he lives in Florida near where I live. And uh, I just, I was speechless at the time. I was, I was 18 years old, young kid. And when I met him the, the next time, I was much more uh, easy and, and so forth uh, to talk to him. But I mean, that first meeting, I was, I was just, uh, yeah. flabber, was just flabbergasted. We know you played with Wayne Gretzky on the Canadian World Junior Team. And I, and I thought of 
me growing up, I mean, I, I wasn't playing against Gretzky. I played against his younger brothers, but I knew all the stories about him getting X number of points per game. And you figure the people that are scoring points, they're usually targeted. So how did you work through that? Were you, did you have to overcome a lot of um, like uh, player matchups when you're a young person uh, and also in junior? Like, how did you work through all that? You know what, uh, Dean, it's a good question they brought up. And um, when you're, when you're a young person and play hockey, um, you get used to dominating. Um, and that's all, you know, as far as a player. And I'm sure Wayne Gretzky would tell you the same thing, uh, that he just got used to dominating uh, uh, hockey games and getting his points and, and scoring and so forth and winning. And for me, it was uh, you just it was a mindset where if you get to this level and then the next level and the next level, as you go through uh, AAA hockey, as you go through uh, Junior B, you go to, to Junior A, and then now you're in the NHL. And for anybody that's got to that level, you, you just got used to your mindset was dominating uh, a hockey game. And that's all you accepted. You wouldn't accept anything less than that than domination. Uh, that's what you were used to. And, um, you know, that, that's what when you look at playing 15 years uh, professional hockey, uh, you just think about that mindset like, Nobody's going to take my job. Um, I'm going to be the leading scorer. Uh, got used to that. Um, and that's what drove you uh, is being, okay, you're going to lead this team in points. You're going to lead the team in goal scoring. And in NHL, it becomes more difficult. Uh, a lot of things have to happen correctly. Uh, who you play with and so forth. Um, you know, of, of my caliber, I, I need to have a really good center to yeah. feet. I, I know how to get open. Sure. Uh, I just couldn't take the punt from end to end and go through everybody like Wayne Gretzky could. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just needed a good center to set me up and I would get in the right place at the right time uh, to finish. And that's, that's what you do. You, you yeah. learn how to, um, at the end of the, of the day, and I was very fortunate. to have some great, great center uh, during my career that, that uh, set me up for uh, goals and good teammates. And, and that's how I survived uh, scoring goals. In general, about your development, was there some people who influenced your development as a hockey player that you remember? Yeah, you know what, uh, I, mean, um, I, I think my parents, uh, number one, um, and very important to, to note that they made my pregame meals. Uh, they drove me to the rink to practice. Uh, my parents made that hockey rink uh, every wintertime uh, for me to have. So if you talk about influence, and again, there's a lot of athletes that I had um, my idols, uh, and there were different sports. There was like, I, I love Muhammad Ali. I, I love basketball players. I love football players. I love baseball players. I like all sports, uh, golfers I love. And all these sports, uh, so to pick one sort of idol uh, is hard to do. But I mean, if I were to pick two of the most important people that gave me uh, the chance to do what I did, I would have to say my parents. And I, I think that's really important for a lot of people uh, to identify. I feel pretty lucky to say that uh, my parents were my idols. Uh, what, what, what else could you say? And wouldn't that, you know, if you could say that your parents were your favorite people that you ever met in your life uh, and you're adopted uh, by those two people that adopted you, right? of a different race, different color, uh, white people, 
And um, I, I think that's a truly great story. Uh, the fact that I was adopted by a white family, had white brothers and sister, and uh, melded into society uh, through hockey. And uh, my parents were uh, the best people I met in my life. And that's, that's a true statement. So you play in the NHL for 13 seasons. Can you comment on what it takes to stay in the league for that long? When I played my first game, um, I thought to myself, and I scored a goal in my first game, which is quite interesting. Not many people have done that uh, in the NHL, um, particularly the Buffalo Sabres. So I scored a goal in my first game, and I thought, geez, if, if I could just play uh, a year uh, in the NHL, that would be awesome after playing my first game. So after I played one year, I, I was starting to think about, okay, I think I can play five years. And that, that would be great. That was what the average back then was five years of longevity in the NHL. So once I got to five years, I thought, oh, well, maybe I could play 10 years, which some guys did. And uh, I looked up to them and I said, geez, this guy's played 10 years. And I thought, okay, when I get, when I get to 10 years, I said, geez, I think I can do this for another five years. It was these five-year increments that I was looking at. And I ended up playing uh, uh, another year in Italy uh, and uh, professionally I paid and then San Diego. So 15 years total. But I mean, it was these five year increments when I was just trying to gain. And one of the, the best things for me, Dean, is that I had an offer to go back to play my 16th year. And I turned it down because my kids were going to school and starting hockey and soccer. And I just wanted to see them get on the school bus on that morning when I went to kindergarten. And I could have gone back for another year uh, to play hockey and get paid for it. And I chose not to do that, uh, to be at home with my kids starting school and starting hockey. Yeah, I was going to ask another question, just really general to, to that point. What's it like being in the NHL? I'm sure there's some positives and negatives to the it all seems positive, but but to your point there about connection with family, there must be a lot of sacrifices. Yeah, you know what, uh, Dean, just uh, you're you're with um, a group of people doing the same thing as you uh, work wise. And the, the wives uh, were quite uh, friendly with each other. So they would get together when we were on the road. And when you're on the road, you're together with 25 people, including trainers and managers and coaches and so you're traveling with a large group of people. So you're all sort of have the same goal. You do the, you're doing the same thing um, as a, as a group of people. And um, you know the sacrifice was was you know you, you, you know, for for four or five months out of this the the year uh, you had time off, uh, which was the after the season. Like so, May through September, um, you know, all you had to do was uh, train or workout, and you know. Uh, that's a pretty good trade-off with being busy for seven or eight months a year. And then all of a sudden you've got four or five months of vacation, although I use it as a tool to, to train. Uh, yeah. from, that's what I did. Yeah. And did that training change over the course of your career? Did it get more serious from beginning to end um, just because um, people were, were knowing more about the effects of uh, training? I mean, I heard stories yeah. before guys who just used to show up at training camp a week before so yeah you know what uh, dean it's interesting you mentioned that uh, i was very lucky uh when i was um before i got to the nhl a friend of mine was a retired cfl football player played for the ottawa rough riders and he taught me how to uh, do the weight training 
which was very interesting and I really enjoyed it. And uh, Nautilus came out at the same time as I started, I started working out seriously. And then other than that, uh, a friend of mine was a karate instructor, uh, a fourth degree black belt. And I started taking karate uh, in the summertime as a training method. And it, all those things uh, were great for me uh, from a training standpoint and from athletic. I went from, uh, I think, 185 to 200 pounds of pure muscle just working out uh, in this training regime. And I actually got to the point where it was my job. And for two hours on a given day, uh, three or four times a week, I just I loved working out with weights and training and running and doing anything athletically uh, is thinking that was my job and it was my job and it made me better. Uh, I got into training um, and you, you relate back to the day where my, my first training camp, uh, the, the trainer for the Buffalo Sabres would bring out like six pairs of skates the guys hadn't seen uh, <laughs> since the end of the last, the, the previous season. And I've been skating since August the 1st, getting ready for training camp. And these guys weren't, weren't doing anything until training camp started. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as ready, and it was a month long, and it was, it was, it was a long training camp. But I mean, I was ahead of the, ahead of the game. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Else. Things were starting to change around that time. And then uh, how difficult is it to sustain? Like you were a top six forward from, from what I remember. How difficult is that to sustain and being a top six forward for most of your career? Well, there, there's uh, there's pressure involved uh, because um, when you're a top six forward, you're, you're making more money than than most people on the team. So <laughs> the most difficult thing for me to sort of digest and realize is that if you if you didn't win the game, uh, they look to the people that made the most money and the goal scores. Uh, and that was a hard one for me because the pressure was on you to make sure if you were winning the game, it was, it was your, your thing. And if you lost the game, it was you not doing, and all these middle players were there. Uh, they weren't counting on the score. They were just counting on the check. They were going to play a lot. So as a top six player, uh, thing, as you mentioned, the forward, uh, you had pressure on you to go out there and every night you, you better be performing uh, as that top player. You were counted up upon that for, from everybody else that you're playing with. And I was going to say against too, like the other team was expecting you to step up. That's true uh, too. So every, every game you just felt like you, uh, you better be on top of your game. Um, yeah. There, there were no, no nights off. Cause they've got a scouting report on all your tendencies and video and all this. So they're really key in on shutting down the scores. Right. So that's something you had to break through uh, throughout your career. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, Dean, that you mentioned that because, um, and I had this discussion with a couple of other people that were top line players. And I, I, would, I would just, when I watched the videotape of different things and when I look at the video, um, I think there were, there were a lot of average players out there, which allowed Wayne Gretzky to go out and get 200 points. Yeah. Uh, it allowed Mario Lemieux to go out and get. There's more space, eh? No, what I mean, it just, the, the, they, they basically, they preyed on the, the yeah. players that were average that were just filling in spots. Yeah. And like if, if you took uh, 12 or 15 guys off a, a, a bad team. Yeah. Uh, 
and you know Edmonton's going out and scoring ten goals. Um, it's because there's a lot of guys that were that were there that weren't really that good. High caliber, yeah. yeah. They're, they're filling yeah. spots you know, on a roster. Like you, you got to fill yeah. 20, twenty positions. That's and right. A lot of those guys were just average players. Yeah. And that's what made the great players uh, be able to be really good. So when yeah. I look at the games, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, uh, there was there was ten guys out there that, that maybe shouldn't be in a league. That's right. Uh, possibly, uh, maybe the yeah. maybe other is great. Buffalo, but before Buffalo, uh, we talked about before that you're friends with um, the Lindsmans. Is it yeah. is it uh, Ken plays with you? And he goes to Birmingham. In my research, I learned that you, you know, Canadian like myself, your experience is relatively positive here in Canada. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's, there's things you had to face on the ice, no doubt, and in society. But the comparison to be in the South, Birmingham, which you may not have been as um, acquainted with in terms of the hockey experience. So then um, maybe you could just sort of elaborate with what happened, what were your aspirations? You, you were hoping to go to WHA. Um, did you ever, were you thinking of WHA then NHL or were you thinking that WHA might be a new beacon of a, of a league for, for someone like you to be a star in? Or? Yeah, uh, two things, uh, Dean. Uh, the, the one part was a money factor, uh, knowing that um, you didn't have to sign a two-way contract, which you would in the NHL. Uh, there was no guarantee um, of going to a place that was going to be a good team. Uh, could have got drafted by Atlanta, uh, which is what the, the, some of the lower teams, Detroit or somebody. So um, one of the big things was that I could get play with uh, Ken Lensman, who I thought I would have success with. I could sign a one-way contract and be in a WHA uh, and versus going to the minors and then graduate to go to the NHL, which a lot of people did. Uh, they had the baby bulls in Birmingham. There were all six of the guys that they signed the next year. They all went to the NHL. So that was sort of the, the jumping off point, uh, for me, uh, looking forward to just, uh, being able to go to the WHA make, uh, you know, uh, uh, big money and then take a year there and then go to the NHL in the following year, which would have happened. As things turned out, um, it, in retrospect, it probably was really good for me to go to Buffalo. Uh, it was close to Canada, which I loved. And uh, the team in Birmingham, come to find out after that went south, uh, basically the team I found out was gonna be um, relinquished within a year. Uh, as they were. And I heard the WHA was going to be uh, folding and then certain teams are going to be going to NHL, which Hartford and Edmonton and um, uh, some other teams uh, ended up uh, going to the NHL from the WHA. So that that was on the horizon. And I found out right in the middle of this whole thing. So in, in retrospect, it worked out to be great. I ended up going to a good established hockey team in Buffalo. And uh, the WHA thing uh, was uh, in my rear mirror because basically uh, what the pundits were saying was that um, the, the league was going to be finished within a year, and they were exactly right. <laughs> and that happened. But before that happened, you were optimistic, regardless, I guess, of being in the – there weren't many teams in the South. It was the only team. But did it cross your mind? Were you – did you have concerns at all 
about going to Birmingham, or did you just see that that uh, issue with the season ticket holders did not want a black band? Yeah, you know, Dean. Uh, I when I thought about it, I was thinking about hockey, and I was thinking about um, my friend Ken Linsman, who uh, really liked being there. He had a great year, and I just thought about being with him uh, because we were good friends in junior, and I was just trying to play hockey. Uh, basically, and uh, it was a good opportunity, and um, I had a chance to do it a year before, and I uh, turned that down, and it was just always in the back of my mind about just playing pro hockey and making a good salary, and um, I thought the NHL would be my future. I just thought it would be a good stepping stone to start in Birmingham. I didn't really think about it being in Alabama. My mother was really concerned about it. And she was very happy uh, when that uh, did not happen. Uh, she was relieved that I wasn't going to live in Birmingham, uh, Alabama. She was uh, actually tearfully crying with happiness when I didn't go there. So that that's sort of my memory of the whole Birmingham thing. Uh, my mother was just relieved that I wasn't going to Alabama. Yeah. Did the whole thing surprise you? Not really, no. I, I guess it, it was a whirlwind. It happened really quickly. And I just was uh, in the middle of uh, thinking about getting drafted in the NHL. Uh, I was in the middle of uh, trying to uh, just continue uh, playing hockey after junior. And uh, again, the, 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 I never thought about uh, Alabama, the fact that Kenny was there and he liked it there. And I thought, okay, if he's there, uh, maybe it's a good place and, and um, whatever. But I mean, in retrospect, it, it, it turned out to be a good thing that I didn't go there. If you're enjoying Recognize and thinking about starting your own hockey card collection, I'd suggest you start with eBay. eBay is all about connecting communities and fueling passions. Because of its thriving card collector community, I was able to make my dream come true by collecting the rookie cards of the NHL's black and biracial players. Start your own collection at ebay.ca slash hockey cards. Yeah, and looking back, it, it's, um, I mean, I think a, a black player coming through nowadays, being as prolific, prolific scorer as you were, um, I think there would be a whole bunch of media coverage over that. And it's just, just um, uh, I mean, it's surprising, I guess, that there wasn't much more outcry of what happened in terms of yeah. particulars, not wanting a black person playing for their team. Like, you no, know, I, I guess, um, it, you know, we're talking uh, 45 years ago. And I guess things were different back then uh, versus today, uh, I, I guess, maybe. But I mean, you know, 1978 is a different time. And um, I don't know. Um, I, I did it just I segued uh, from there when that happened uh, right into the NHL draft I was at in Montreal. So all of a sudden I'm, I'm signed by Buffalo Sabres and I'm signing a contract within two weeks of that happening. So it it, it sort of happened really quickly. Uh, so I didn't have a, I didn't have a lot of time to, to think about that. Uh, just focusing on Buffalo drafted me, Buffalo signed me, and I was going to go make the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, and I just put it in my rear view mirror. I just I thought, okay, it's a bad situation. Um, I put it behind me, and I just went forward and played uh, for the Buffalo Sabres. So that um, so it wasn't. It was so short uh, in in the time frame 
of when that happened. And I segued into the Buffalo thing. It, it happened and it seemed like a, in a heartbeat where one situation led into the other and I'm a Buffalo saver. Yeah. <laughs> uh, real quickly. But I mean, I, I didn't dwell on it a lot. I just said, okay, uh, that's, that's that. And um, anyway. So you land in Buffalo. You're coached by one of the most successful coaches, Scotty Bowman. What was it like playing for Scotty? Uh, he was great. Um, Scotty was uh, one of the guys that he sort of knew um, who was going well. Um, and second to that, uh, he knew who to put out on the ice against uh, the opponents. He just knew the game. And the other guy he brought in was Roger Nielsen, which is a, a genius and uh, ran the practices and so forth. And so Scotty brought in uh, some people uh, to be our assistant coaches that were fabulous, Jimmy Roberts. Uh, so just he brought in the right people uh, to fit in. Um, but Scotty was uh, he, he knew the game. And uh, he, I saw him recently in a, in a function about a month ago. And he mentioned that his one regret was he didn't win a Stanley Cup in Buffalo because he won a Stanley Cup in Detroit, Montreal, Pittsburgh and Chicago. And it was the one place he didn't win the Stanley Cup. And that was his regret because he still lives here and he still loves uh, Buffalo, New York. So that was his regret, not winning the Stanley Cup in Buffalo. Uh, he just said that uh, a month ago. I, I saw him. At, yes. So, yeah, that's, yeah. But uh, great coach, uh, obviously. The record thing and, and uh, fabulous to be able to be coached by that person. Yep. And uh, I was going to say, uh, Dean, when he gave you a pat in the back, it meant a lot. And it wasn't often. It wasn't often, but when he gave you a pat in the back, uh, that was something. And he mentioned to me that, um, and he told Ray Newfeld this, uh, he was at a banquet in Winnipeg to um, build that um, that support uh, thing for... Um, oh, Ray, the, yeah, Ray Newfeld, the other black player who uh, played for Hartford, yeah. Hartford yeah, then uh, Winnipeg. Ray, Ray had a banquet with him for the uh, gentleman that's on Hockey Night Canada. They, they built a, a, a rehab center uh, for his son, uh, Scott, um, in Winnipeg. Beautiful place. So uh, Scotty told Ray Newfeld that uh, I was the first great black hockey player. Yeah. And he saw really, he saw Willie O'Ree, he saw uh, the guys in Quebec when he was a kid. Yeah. He coached your older brother too. Uh, Herb Carnegie and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, he talked about those guys, uh, black players coming through in Quebec, the province. Um, and he brought that up. And uh, he said I was the best, the first best black hockey player, um, which was a nice compliment for him to give me. So do you have any stories to share about the impact um, you had as a uh, racial minority in the league, the only black player in Buffalo? You talked about there being other black athletes in Buffalo. That was comforting to you. Uh, when we had a conversation before, you talked about the Buffalo Bills, the Braves, were still in Buffalo, I guess, just as, just before they moved. They were there as well. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the Braves were here. Bob McAdoo uh, was one of the best players in the league. Um, maybe was the MVP. I'm, I'm not sure. And uh, as I mentioned about the Buffalo uh, Bills players, uh, we had a lot of social functions together with the two teams. And uh, for me, coming here to a different country uh, for the first time, I never lived in the United States before. 
And uh, I was accepted in the hockey uh, realm, uh, but it was like I was a Buffalo Bill. And that sort of made me feel comfortable that I was just out uh, at restaurants or something. And I was accepted as a black athlete, uh, but it was sort of comparatively speaking to the Buffalo Bills. And that helped a lot. Uh, if I would have gone to, I'm just trying to think of it in a different city. Uh, oh, where, yeah. Would have been a stand, uh, more of a, a standout, if you will. But in Buffalo, uh, they were used to uh, having black athletes uh, playing for the Buffalo Bills, and uh, I fit into that um, that mold, and which made me that much more comfortable uh, living in a, a, a U.S. city uh, as a black hockey player. Uh, but it was, uh, it was almost like it was a, a, a might as well have been a, a Buffalo Bill. Uh, it was it was. It was really uh, made it a much easier transition, uh, being that the fact that the Bills were here. So it's um, like the fan base sort of celebrated all the athletes and the fact that there was, um, you know, a lot of exposure of, uh, yeah, both the Braves being there for one and also the Bills, right? Yeah, it must have been very yeah. comforting. And Buffalo just seemed to be a place where uh, Black people were accepted. Um in the community um and it's still it's it's changed a little bit here now because of the mass shootings and so forth so there's a there's a, a heightened sense of um i don't know uh here uh it's just it's changed a little bit uh the the race yeah. has um come around sort of on that on that note then could you elaborate even like just what's it like being the only black player in the nhl what was it like um I mean, there wasn't well, really anyone else. So yeah, you know what, Dean? It was it was kind of interesting because you, as a player, you're you're just trying to do uh, the same thing as everybody else is. You're just trying to make it, and you're trying to survive as a rookie, uh, as a young player. Uh, everybody was feeling the same way. With okay, this is new to me. Um, now I'm I'm in the NHL, uh, and after you make that hurdle um, and you survive that getting in there, you're basically trying to survive and you want to have a three-year career. You want to have a four-year career. You want to have a five-year career. So uh, that, that the, 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 the hockey thing uh, took uh, the main focus of anything you were doing because you were just trying to make it uh, and survive and stay. Uh, so the hockey part was was certainly one thing the, the the black thing got put into the background for me because I was used to it. Um, I started playing uh, organized hockey when I was five years old. So I was used to being the only black player on the ice for the 15 years before I got to the NHL. So I knew every time I went into an ice rink, any, any city I went to, um, I was it. I was the only one. And then the NHL became no different. Okay, here's another uh, level where you have to uh, get over this hurdle. Again, now you're in the NHL and now you're trying to stay there. Uh, and I'll tell you one thing, my teammates in Buffalo particularly uh, didn't treat me any differently um, of, as far as anything. And again, when, when you're, you know, you're a scorer and you're helping the team win, uh, but I mean, my teammates treated me like I was no different uh, back at, at that time, which helped a lot in uh, me fitting in uh, to that. So it sounds like in terms of any um, racism, racism you would have experienced, 
Um, was there a particular uh, time in your career as a young person, or, or would you just say it was just kind of, if, if there's racism overt that you experienced, would it be more, would it be more pronounced? Yeah, Dean, there were a couple of instances that happened, and it's kind of funny when you're going through uh, something like that, you basically want to put it aside, and you don't want it to drag you down. You don't want it to be a negative, if you will. And there were a couple of uh, ugly incidents that happened that I, I don't like to think about, and I I don't mind bringing it up, but I mean, it's just something you, you put uh, in, the, as I said before, the rearview mirror where you just don't want to think about it. You just want to think, okay, that's, let's, get, uh, let's get away from that. Uh, some stuff that happened to me, and I, I just thought it was life. Uh, at the time, it was just something I was going through. And when you survive this stuff and you overcome it, uh, some racial stuff that happened to me, uh, you just, you just thought, think about it as being just, okay, I guess it's life, and I can get beyond this, and I can achieve and get beyond it. Um, and there are some incidents that happened that I, I hate to even think about um, that happened in my lifetime. And I guess that's the way that you you dealt with it. You, you sort of wanted to put that uh, on the side and then just continue and try to um, be better. Kind of control what you can control and um, yep. it's other, other people's problems, right? But now... Well, like, now yeah, nowadays it seems like because there's more allies in terms of the community of players, like you talked about your players being supportive, not seeing you, treating you differently. But obviously there, there would have been some fans, there would have been different experiences you would have had. And I think we're, we're all hoping we get to a place where um, those people can be uh, confronted now. It's not, it's not you, it's not me, it's not black players, it's people just basically saying um, this shouldn't be tolerated. And but but back when you played, um, there there's not really much of accountability. I, I I think what people try to get an edge on anyone and anything they could use against anyone they did, whether it was race, whether it's religion, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, but I, I think we're recognizing now as, as a society um, that should not be happening. Yeah, and it's again, it's a it's a tough thing to tackle. Uh, but I, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you just try to do the best you can do, and uh, you just sort of deal with um, what's out there. Um, I just never wanted to make it a major uh, point because I was so happy uh, with the success I had, and I got through it, survived it, and um, I'm very happy that some younger uh, persons of color. Um, are now having success in the National Hockey League. Um, I just think that's fabulous that um, it's come to a point where we have, I think, 28 or 30 uh, persons of color playing in the National Hockey League, and I was one. Um, so the fact that there's now 30 people playing and, and doing well, and I'm not sure if the number is incorrect, but I mean, it, you know, we've come a long way uh, with our race and um, in the sport and uh, female hockey players as well. Yeah. Well, it's very impactful because um, I remember you telling a story about Jerome McGinley and, and he mentioned the hall yep. of fame ceremony. I went to last, uh, last year and he mentioned that, um, um, you know, he felt more proud. He was easier for him to foresee a future in the NHL because he knew Tony McKechnie 
was in NHL, but but let's think about regardless of the NHL, like how many kids when you play in the United States um, where there's not as many people of color playing in particular, and if, if they could access the game, how many lives you touched just to play the game, never mind the NHL, just because people sort of saw themselves in the game. Yeah, I was going to mention, Gene, the one thing that Jerome said, he felt comfortable in the uh, in the schoolyard. Uh, playing comfortable ball. in the schoolyard, yeah. 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 I, uh, the other person that made the same uh, comment uh, about 15 years ago was the rapper. Um, uh, I got to think of his name. He's from oh, uh, Drake. Drake. No, it wasn't Drake. It was somebody else uh, that made a comment about, hey, uh, Tony McKenney is playing in the National Hockey League as he was growing up playing in a schoolyard. Yeah. And, and it wasn't Drake, but it was somebody uh, very similar. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm not a big rap fan. But okay. the guy, the guy was from Toronto, and um, you you'd know the name. It wasn't Drake, yeah. but somebody okay. uh, on that level yeah. uh, that made the comment like, "Hey, geez, I, I love hockey." I share a lot of experiences with you um, where there's a there was a time where um, people said they didn't see color. So even myself, I might have idolized, um, you know, before you came along, like you know, Guy Lafleur, Steve Shutt, just as you mentioned, uh, you know, Bobby Orr and all these, all these players, I, I think sometimes people would, would hold it against you when they saw color and said, well, what are you doing out there? There's no one else <laughs> looks like you. So I think what, when players like yourself and Grant Fuhrer and all that came along, um, not, not that we had to say this to prove to people, but it was easier to say, yeah, there is a player of color in the NHL. There is a black player. And I think that just made things, things easier. And then as these other players uh, followed you, if they, if they know your history, um, you know, I, again, I, I, I don't know if you ever felt that you got enough recognition for the, the uh, prolific scoring that you had over that career. I mean, it was, it was really unprecedented to, 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 so, so if we don't see color, it's just Tony McKegney, right? What you got. But the fact that, um, that you were a minority and the first top scoring minority um, I, I just think if someone was coming through like you today, I mean, they're, they're, we, we know there's lots of players, but uh, but the impact you had at that time. But interesting enough, a lot, a lot of people I grew up with, yeah, they didn't see they didn't see color, which which is great. They said Tony McKechnie is playing for Buffalo, so it's it's a it's a double a double edged piece here. One is people saw you as a hockey player, which is phenomenal, but, but I wonder if society missed out at that point in time in terms of recognizing um diversity i think diversity is a good thing and you you stood out as someone that was different i i, I do a lot of charity work with um the homeless people here and um it's kind of funny i see black people wearing sabers uh hats and paraphernalia uh jerseys in buffalo and i don't remember seeing that when i played here and I talked to some some black people um, in conversation, and they said that they they loved the sport, they loved the Sabers, they couldn't afford to go to the games back when they were younger, uh, but they loved the team, they watched the team on TV. So that's sort of how I can relate to the average black person that is a Sabers fan uh, here in Buffalo. They they did celebrate you, but through through uh, viewing on TV, uh, one would hope. Yeah, they just couldn't afford to go to the game. 
Yeah, they, they I think they wanted to. It was just uh, it was too expensive for them. So you also want to touch on just concussions you had in your lifetime and any impacts that had on on you. And this sort of circles back to what I mentioned before about being able to be a top six forward and do what you need to do to stay in the league. And uh, the first concussion I ever had, I fell off a, a scaffolding. I was watching my brother play baseball in uh, Ontario. Yeah, I, I was 10 years old. I fell 20 feet down onto what was basically pavement uh, from the grandstands at a baseball game. And that was the first concussion I had. And after that first one, um, I, ended up, I remember just seeing stars a lot when I was playing sports. And I just shook my head and I thought it was just part of it. But uh, come to find out, uh, anytime you see stars, it's a minor concussion. Uh, anytime you see stars. And I, I used to see stars uh, once a week, probably. Uh, I just thought it was normal. I didn't know what it was. I was 10 years old. And uh, so this concussion thing, uh, then obviously I had several more uh, when I played uh, pretty much uh, from the time then uh, until Anyway, you just you have these concussions and, you know, it's just it's part of the game, I guess, when you're doing it. But I mean, uh, after you retire, uh, your mind certainly gets much worse and you get dementia and you get Alzheimer's uh, earlier than normal uh, at an age where it's it's just uh, it's premature uh, for having the symptoms of dementia. Uh, and but after you've had these concussions, it just increases that thing and it becomes um, like 50 years old becomes 60 uh, in a hurry as far as how your brain's reacting to having concussions so it's a really serious thing and and you know as you saw recently the young kid that uh, played in that uh, miami dolphins and you know he shouldn't be on the field um you know uh and I, I shouldn't have been on the field myself on a few occasions, uh, but I wanted to play. And that's the difference is you, you don't want to be said, geez, I can't play today. You, you don't want to be doing that story. Uh, it's just a sign of weakness. When you uh, do that, it's a sign of weakness. Uh, you're, you want to show your teammates you're, you're tough enough to hang in there. And that's what you do with concussions. You, you don't say i don't want to go out there you want to be out there you don't want to lose your spot in the lineup and that's the concussion thing you you, you want to be in there and and that was the way things definitely were uh, seen and you're hopefully things have gotten better in that regard in terms of you know player player contracts but i i get what you're saying um, yeah, well, if you don't go back out yeah, today they have the, the quiet room, which is great, where they, they monitor somebody and they have them uh, looked at. And that's great. Uh, again, back in when I played, you simply didn't want to show any weakness um, because you were worried about losing your spot uh, in the lineup. And you didn't want to show your teammates uh, any weakness. And you definitely didn't want to show the other team a weakness that you had uh as your opposition you, you, those are the two things you didn't want to uh show uh as a weakness yeah but but over the course if you're remembering that number i mean that's quite a significant number so um you know that's 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 a lot uh nowadays um you know 11 that would be quite quite impactful on someone so i, I yeah that must be tough. Uh, 
Yeah, and, and again, there there was so many uh, Dean uh, just like minor uh, concussions um, yeah. that happened uh, that you just shook it off. Uh, you took five minutes, uh, give give your head a shake, and you just got out there uh, again. Um, in the morning, you just thought it was it was almost it felt like a hangover or something. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the following day, after you got knocked out, um, and s some of my friends I played with. Um, and unless you got, we used to call it getting your bell rung. Um, yeah. Probably no. And we used to sit around and laugh and say, look, you didn't get your bell rung uh, last week. You're not playing well. And we used to, we used to laugh about it. You didn't get cut this week. Uh, so you're not, you're not into it. You're not into no. the game. Right. Uh, so we used to laugh about it. The fact that if you're, if you're playing right, you're getting knocked out, you're getting your bell rung. And you're getting cut for stitches uh, if you're playing the game properly. Yeah. And we look at each other and say, "Yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> you know, I got to get, I got to get in there." Uh, yeah. And that was mindset back then, as far as playing uh, NHL hockey, that's what you want. Tony, following your your career, then, what did you take up? How did you spend your time after uh, you decided to hang up the skates? Yeah, you know what, uh, Dean? It's interesting. Um, after and I, I count the years of junior hockey as being part because I was being paid to play uh, for five years before I got to the NHL. So when I look at it, there were 20 years there uh, that I was getting paid to play hockey uh, from the time I was 15. So uh, I'll tell you when you when you when you retire from hockey after 20 years of every uh, fall uh, going to training camp and it's like going to school, uh, you know. Now, the first year you don't go to school, uh, it's a weird feeling, uh, as you probably know. And then the first year after 20 years of not going to training camp in September, it was a weird feeling not going to training camp. Uh, and all of a sudden, now you're not playing hockey anymore. And the thing about hockey players uh, and professional athletes is that you? I, I left school at 19 because I knew I was going to the NHL. Okay, one year of college, great. And so when, when you retire after playing hockey for that many years, you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, you're not an accountant. So you're, you, you don't have anything really to fall back on, which is a, a degree, which you would have got if you just would have went to university or college. So now you're starting, um, you know, in career and so forth. And it's a tough transition. Uh, when you don't have a degree and you're either going to sell cars or sell insurance or something, uh, but you don't have a, a law degree uh, or, or you're not an accountant, you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer. Uh, so that's the difference with the transition portion. And then with the concussion thing, uh, basically, you're, you're just not um, that it gets worse uh, as years go by, uh, as uh, dementia and so forth. So that, that's a tough thing about the transition uh, after your career. I ended up um, building some sports facilities uh, in different uh, uh, provinces and different states, and I did that for a while. Uh, but again, I just uh, watched my kids play hockey, uh, watched my kids play sports. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough transition for a lot of people, uh, making that segue uh, after uh, the only thing you know is playing hockey for a number of years. And it's not the easiest transition for a lot of people uh, making that transition into um, regular life. Yeah. 
And I suppose the contracts in terms of revenue from players was starting to get better near the end of your career, perhaps. Yeah, but it, uh, it, uh, it jumped up, Dean, um, when the, the first free agency thing happened. I remember Scott Stevens um, and then the draft picks and so forth. So the, the money got greater um, uh, at the end of my career. And then it, it, it obviously has gone up since then. But um, I was always in the top probably 10 percent um in the league uh after my fifth year i think so i, I never worried about the money part because i was paid in the top 10 percent of everybody that was playing uh so i never felt like i got cheated uh money-wise uh as what they were paying uh back in the day and it did it, it went up uh, quite considerably uh right around the time that i retired is when the, the salaries jumped by twice as much so, but again, um, what what you do is you, you know, you have to pinch yourself when when you're out on the ice uh, playing against Guy Lafleur. You know, uh, growing up idolizing Guy Lafleur, uh, you're playing in the Montreal Forum, you're playing in, in Maple Leaf Gardens, you're playing in the Boston Garden, you're playing in Madison Square Garden. So when you're doing that, you sort of pinch yourself and say, "Geez, this is what I dreamt about doing," and here I am. Uh, playing for the Buffalo Sabres. I'm playing against the New York Rangers. I'm playing against the Islanders, uh, playing against Wayne Gretzky. Um, so you, you just sit back and say, okay, I, I could be doing a lot worse than this uh, in the NHL and playing against and with uh, people that you idolized. So at, at, every, at every turn, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pretty good day uh, when you sat back about what, what you were doing, what you accomplished. Uh, there were too many negatives uh, for me uh, because, you know, you realized your goal and you fulfilled your goal. Like um, I led hockey teams in scoring when I was in junior, when I was a kid. And then can you imagine leading an NHL team in scoring? And you actually did that. You know what I mean? Like the, I, was a, I was a scorer and now you're in the NHL in the top league in the world and you're leading an NHL hockey team in scoring. And that's what your goal was. We talked about the fact that uh, you, you learn to dominate and be a leader of your team and so forth. And then all of a sudden you get to the, the pinnacle of uh, the business of hockey and you're leading an NHL team and scoring, not once, but more than once. And, uh, so you, you got the best of the best uh, players from all across Canada, Europe, and United States. And now you're at this, this pinnacle and you're leading a team in scoring with the, everybody that plays hockey uh, in Europe and United States and Canada is now come to this point and you're leading a, a team in scoring. All these guys that uh, are coming together, uh, the best players in the world are now coming to this league. So that's that's something you you can take pride in. That that for a black player for making comparisons wasn't uh, wasn't matched until Jerome Ginla so many years later, right? And a great career. And I, I, I told Grant Fuhrer that um, right during the middle of that 40-goal season, geez, you're, you're lucky. You, you get to keep your mask on for the whole game. That's a black, black player. No, no, nobody knows you're black until the game's over and you take that mask off, right? Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I got to be out there uh, doing this the whole game where everybody can see who I am, what it looked like. I said, you're, you're lucky. And so we just laughed about it. What would you say then – in order for there to be more um, 
racial minorities in the NHL. I mean, you, you're unique because again, most of the black players have grown up in Canada. You, you've lived in the U.S. There are some systemic barriers. Um, I think there are generally in both countries, but probably more pronounced in the U.S. If you look at how many black athletes have had the opportunity to pers- to uh, be successful in other sports. And I, I know you've mentioned before about if there was a Michael Jordan of hockey, but um, you know, I still say at that point in time, I, I just think the media exposure towards what you were accomplishing, I, I know you're not Wayne Gretzky, but um, that, that does it, does it have to be someone that's in a top three scoring? I, I mean, I just, no, I, just I, uh, I just wonder about that. Yeah. I think Dean that um, uh, when, when the Raptors won the, uh, NBA championship. I, I think a lot of uh, young people uh, like to play basketball. Uh, and reason being, uh, in such a great sport, and soccer as well, um, and baseball, obviously. I just think that uh, the money factor in trying to play hockey, uh, the rarity is is uh, the Subban family, where the father is a principal of a school. And he can afford to put those kids through the hockey program and afford the equipment. And again, with with the hand-me-downs and so forth, probably. So that's a rarity for a family like that of great athletes to be able to play hockey versus basketball, where all you need is a pair of running shoes and you can get court time for free. Uh, Hockey's uh, the most expensive sport uh, to play in the world, uh, given today. Um, I can't think of a sport that's more expensive for somebody to try to play. Uh, so that's the thing that'll, that'll, that'll be a take back for uh, the Michael Jordan of the world uh, growing up in Toronto that might be that great an athlete, but doesn't really have the opportunity to play hockey because the ice time and the equipment and the sticks and everything on down the line is uh, prohibitive um, for the average young person to play uh, that sport. And that's, I don't know if it'll ever change. It just seems like the price goes up for ice time, for equipment, it's never going down. Uh, So that's why we're not gonna see that type of player. And that's why my situation was quite unique. And the fact I just fell into a a slot where I was allowed to get equipment. I have an ice hockey rink in my backyard. It It was a rarity. Uh, for me to be able to do that uh, through being adopted. If I wasn't adopted by that family, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, I don't think. One thing I wanted you to comment that's unique, uh, Tony, because I got to meet uh, Val James. And yeah. uh, another unique coincidence is that he plays limited games for Buffalo, but both of you are playing for Buffalo at yeah. the same time. But but tell tell us about his story, about what you do about him growing up. Like he, his dad was amazing story, um, uh, Dean. And I think we spoke about this. Um, you know, the fact that uh, somebody uh, grew up in Florida, and then his father gets a job as a rink manager in Long Island. Incredible story. And uh, he basically got called up, and uh, we we actually had. A situation in Boston. We went into Boston. He played limited games, but uh, they were very memorable about the impact he had. And everybody knew about him uh, from Rochester because he was beating the shit out of everybody in the American League. And everybody knew, who the hell is this Val James guy? 
And uh, at training camp, he was just at a rookie camp and nobody really knew him. And he just went to Rochester. So sure enough, uh, he comes up and we go into Boston and he beats the shit out of Terry O'Reilly in Boston in like 1982. Uh, and that was like, uh, so we, we had a police escort to the bus after the game because the people wanted to kill him. Uh, as we were walking from the locker room to the bus. Uh, it wasn't a far walk, maybe 100 yards at the Boston Garden. So sure enough, uh, the next year, uh, we go in for the first exhibition game against Boston in our division. So the Zamboni driver is looking at me, and I'm standing watching the Bruins in the morning skate. And he looks at me, he says, hey, you, you played really good in here last year. And I said, okay, thanks. And he thought I was Val James. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the beat the shit out of Terry O'Reilly two times in Boston. Yeah. And he thought it was Val. Uh, and I said, uh, okay, uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's yeah. uh, the, other, the other story about Val James, I got to tell you, is that he came up uh, first game and he's playing on my left side. He hadn't had a shift until the third period. And we were up seven to three. We hadn't beat Philadelphia in two and a half years. So everybody knew he was on the bench. Our team knew it. The other the Philadelphia Flyers knew this guy was sitting on the bench. So he gets out for one shift in the third period. And the puck jumps loose in the corner. And it was like the parting in the Red Sea. Nobody wanted to go near him. So he picks up the puck and, and had uh, like all the room you'd wanted and yeah. nobody yeah. wanted to go near him. Nobody. And a great guy and very well liked and uh, by everybody ever played with because he stuck up for his teammates. Yeah. And that was Val James. He stuck up for his teammates. Wow. And we talk about different pressures of being the guy who's scoring. What's it like being enforcer and what's it like being enforcer uh, black and probably one of the first black enforcers from what I re recall too. So. Yeah, he would have been that. And uh, the thing I used to think about, uh, Dean, is that, you know, the night before the game, I was thinking about uh, the opposition goalies. I was thinking about maybe uh, somebody on the other team that I, I had to keep an eye on. And I was sitting back and thinking, OK, these guys have to go out and fight every every game. OK, uh, are you thinking about Bob Probert the night before the game in Detroit at the hotel? Is that that's that's who you're going to have to go with tomorrow uh, as a tough guy. Uh, are you thinking about like in any city, you're thinking about Dave Brown in Philly the night before the game. I used to think about I'm thinking about goalies and these guys are thinking about okay, I got to fight Dave Brown tomorrow night uh, in Philadelphia. So that that you talk about pressure uh, that would keep me up at night uh, thinking about going up against those guys. I'd be thinking about it the night before. And I, I did want to capture that experience because not everyone gets to play with um, with the players you mentioned, in particular Wayne Gretzky. He's a little bit younger than you, and you played with him on the junior team in Canada um, late 70s. And did you play with him again, or was that, that was the only time you actually played with no, him? No, that was um, kind of interesting story, Dean. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Uh, the first time I saw Wayne Gretzky play, uh, I was playing junior hockey for Kingston. And we used to play afternoon games at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens uh, on the Saturdays. 
And our game was like one o'clock and then the Leafs would play that night. Okay. So sure enough, um, we get there at 11 a.m. for a one o'clock game and Wayne Gretzky is playing an exhibition game against some team in Toronto as a uh, probably 14 year old at the time. So sure enough, uh, I'm watching and I heard about them uh, and I'd read about them and I'd never seen him before. So sure enough, every time he's on the ice, he had the, he had the puck the whole time. And he basically could do anything he wanted to do. And I'd never seen that before. Uh, it was incredible. So sure enough, uh, he's probably got, I don't know, five points uh, or I don't know, maybe more. And then we, we go in the locker room. So we, we go to play the Marlies in Toronto. And I end up getting two goals and one assist uh, in that afternoon. And we, we beat the Marlies in Toronto, which we hadn't done before. So sure enough, we, we got on the bus and we knew that Toronto was playing Boston that night, the Maple Leafs. And we, we hurriedly wanted to go back to Kingston to watch the game that night, to watch the Leafs at eight o'clock because we'd just been there. So sure enough, it was the same night that Daryl Sittler scored six goals and four assists. I remember same, that night, yeah. Yep, same day uh, that uh, I was there and Gretzky was there. And uh, Daryl Sittler gets 10 points in a hockey game as we got back to Kingston to watch the game on TV. So it all happened in that day uh, in Maple Leaf Gardens. It's an interesting memory. And you played on his line in that Canadian Junior Tournament, didn't you, with Wayne Babbage? Uh, yeah, yeah we, we played together, and it was uh, it was the easiest game I ever played in my life because uh, he used to say to me, he says, look, just go over there, and I'll get you the puck. I said, okay. Um, I went there, and sure enough, uh, the, he got me the puck. <laughs> you know, and he's 16 years old, and I'm, I'm 19, and yeah. uh, this kid is 100 and uh, 55 pounds and he's playing that kind of game. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, and just, I don't know. They said he couldn't skate very well and he, he certainly got to where he needed to go to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So uh, I wish I would have had a chance to play with him in NHL. Uh, they yeah. wanted to, to trade for me uh, during the oh. time. Wow. And, and uh, Scotty wanted too much. Uh, apparently uh, he, oh. wanted too, he wanted two first round picks. I think that, that that's yeah. what they're asking. And Edmonton didn't want, didn't want to give it up. Wow. Uh, but I mean, I had it. I could have won a Stanley Cup, maybe. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what legacy would you like your career to uh, have for the next generation of players? Dean, just uh, perseverance. Uh, I just think uh, just never, never give up. Um, and just uh, work, uh, have an extremely uh, good work ethic, um, uh, which I... Uh, prided, I prided myself in the fact that uh, somebody said you always hustled and I, I thought uh, by working hard um, that that was half the battle and then after that you know talent comes through and you know, finishing goal scoring and so forth but I mean I just think the work ethic for any young person if you're if you're working hard uh, you can never go wrong uh, when you have a good work ethic um, that's what I think about sports and, and life and hockey and so forth uh, just, just the work ethic, uh, which you can never deny uh, that ethic, uh, yeah. which is hard, hard work. Uh, I think yeah. that's that's where you gotta that's where you gotta be. I think that, that's that's my recipe for success for anybody is just work hard. And, and at the end of the day, if you if you work your ass off, uh, you can't say, "Geez, I didn't try." 
sort of thing. You know, I, I gave it my best. Uh, and if things didn't, the cards didn't fall right uh, after you gave it your best, uh, then so be it. But I mean, it, at least you tried. We're proud to be working with Hockey Equality. Hockey Equality is on a mission to create diversity at all levels of the game of hockey by lowering financial barriers for BIPOC female and other equity deserving youth hockey players. If you've been moved by the stories shared on this podcast and want to help make hockey accessible to all, check out hockeyequality.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to share this story with your kids, then check out My Hockey Hero. It's shorter and suitable for the whole family. You can click the link in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Podstarter production. production.